Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on April 29th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... How do you want to compare us with other animals if, if, if there are so many species that have extraordinary capacities? Some of them are very specialized. Uh, some of them, like, uh, let's say, uh, chimpanzees, they are not specialized. They're, they're like us. They, they can solve all sorts of problems, even completely new problem that, that tests new capacities. That's Franz de Waal. He's at Emory University in Atlanta, and he's the director of its Living Links Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. And his latest book is called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? In the current issue of The Atlantic, Berkeley psychologist Alison Gopnik reviews the book. She says the primatologist Franz de Waal has been at the forefront of research that explores the distinctive ways in which animals think, and he is its most important public voice. In Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are?, he makes a passionate and convincing case for sophistication of non-human minds. DeWall was in New York City recently. I met with him at the offices of his publisher, W.W. Norton and Company. They're at the exact center of the universe, that is, the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. So you'll also enjoy a bit of authentic New York street sound. Here's Franz DeWall. It seems to me that there's a key phrase in your book, evolution pushes cognition around. Mm-hmm. I, to me, that was the crux that you have to look at this from an evolutionary point of view. And until you do, you know, as has been said about other things and evolution in biology, it's stamp collecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's the problem with the approach that we've had in the last century. They tried to simplify animals, and that also meant that all the processes had to be equated. So you know a rat, you know a pigeon, you know everything there is to know about animal cognition. Even though a rat and a pigeon are already quite different, I would say, but uh, compare the rat to, uh, let's say, an elephant. The elephant has a four-kilogram brain, so the elephant must have demands on its brain that are quite different from the rat's. Now, some of that could be its body, of course, but some of that is also cognition, I'm sure. I have two cats, mm -hmm. and, and one day, after I'd had the cats for a few months... I realized that they had been training me, not the other way around. <laughs> that's always the, that's always the story of the experimental psychologists. Also, is they think they're training the rats, but the rats the rats may be training them. Yeah, and so we we tend to look at animals as trainable, and that was of course the the story of behaviorism. Is if you give them enough rewards and punishment, they will behave like you want them to behave. As if that's the goal of, of, of what we need to achieve, you know, we, we need to know how animals are trainable. But I would rather understand how do they think and how do they solve the problems in their environment and what kind of solutions do they come up with spontaneously and under what kind of circumstances. And this whole idea of training animals, this Kinder box idea alone, a little box where you can do nothing else than press a lever to get rewards – that's that's almost like a fascist <laughs> instrument in the sense it's it's a control instrument. Mm -hmm. So so why would you want to do that? I, I can see the the advantages for animal trainers obviously, but uh, other than that, uh, to understand animal cognition, it's not so helpful. You can train a bear to ride a bicycle, mm -hmm. but but and in a way, so what? It's you talk in the book about how I can excite a cat or a dog by throwing something that they'll chase uh -huh. because that's part of their natural yeah. uh, behavior repertoire. But I'm not going to be able to pull that off with a rabbit. 
Unless yeah, I yeah, really yeah. train the hell out of the rabbit, and the rabbit's not going to be all that interested. Yeah, yeah. So all the animals have natural tendencies uh, to 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 hack into wood or to climb into a tree or to dig into the ground. Or all, all these animals have natural tendencies, and that was sort of ignored in behaviorism because it was, the focus was on what can we, what can we teach them by certain methods. Uh, and, and all these natural tendencies, they create learning opportunities. So, for example, a chimpanzee or a monkey, they, they like to climb trees and they're going to learn a lot of things about trees and how not to fall out of them and how to jump from A to, B, to A to B. And they, they're going to learn an enormous amount of things just by that natural tendency that they have. And, and I think that's true for so many animals. You have a, a terrific example fairly early in the book about an experiment in which uh, various species were uh, asked if they could retrieve a banana, and they were these yeah. were all primates, and they were yeah. going to be really excited about yeah, getting yeah, that banana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the gibbons couldn't yeah. do it, yeah. and so people assumed the gibbons were stupid. Yeah, yeah. The gibbons were declared stupid because this was a string pulling task where you need to look at a bunch of strings and pick them up. And the string, of course, that's connected to food is the one that you need to pick up as you, if you understand how the task works. And the, and the gibbons were not doing anything, and they d- were declared not so intelligent as the rest until uh, Ben Beck, um, a, a scientist, an experimental scientist, decided that since the gibbon have hands where they cannot really do much with, these are more hanging hands to hang in a tree, he said, I'm going to put the strings in a different way so that they can grab them. And all of a sudden, the gibbons were just as good as anyone else. And, and, and so it was basically the way we tested them. And this has come up so many times. How do you test an elephant? How do you test a, a possum? How do you test an, a primate? And with the primates, of course, we have a very good sense of how to test them because we are primates. So we pick up things with our hands and we have binocular vision and all of that. But how are you going to test an elephant, for example? And so with elephants, people have discovered that um, they don't like to pick up things necessarily with their trunk. If it is if the, if it is an instrument to reach food, because they also use the trunk to smell that food, and so they refuse to pick up things like a stick to reach food because they're blocking their own sense of yeah. smell when they do it. Yeah, so they don't want to do that, but they do want to move a box under the food to reach it if it hangs high, and and so elephants are certainly capable of tool use, and and this has happened many times. People have made conclusions like elephants are not so smart for this, and gibbons are not so smart for that. And and that's all negative evidence and is very problematic, really. And and the saying, of course, in our field is like, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and and that still holds, I would say. And and you we're also dealing with this. Uh, humans are the center of the universe. I mean, we got rid of the Earth as the center of the universe, and then the the solar system is the center of the universe. But we're still stuck in a lot of ways with this idea of humans as the pinnacle of creation in the center of the universe, yeah. and it affects all all this outlook on all the other species. Yeah, and so we're constantly comparing, and it's almost like a contest. So it's, um, can animals do this or that? And so for me, the question, am I smarter than an octopus, is, is really like a silly question. It's a bit like a question like, is a rose a better plant than an oak or something? And I don't know how to answer that question, and I think it's a wrong question. But we keep asking that in relation to ourselves. And so we, we look at ourselves and we think technology is important and language is important, and then we throw these phenomena at other other species and see how far they come. But take, for example, the echolocation abilities of a, of a, a bat. That's something we cannot relate to, and that's something 
we don't do at all. And so we consider that a, of a different category. Echolocation by bats is, is like a specialization. We don't particularly care about it. And that's because we cannot relate to it, and so we think it's really not that relevant. You, you talk in the book, you have one example of um, an experiment in which monkeys looked to be more intelligent than chimps mm -hmm. because it turned out the chimps just didn't care. Uh -huh. the, yeah. where they were reaching into the hole. Yeah, this was a test that I did myself. I, I was in a lab where they were testing both monkeys and chimps on a task where they needed to stick an arm through a sleeve and then they could feel and they needed to make a manual discrimination, haptic. It's called haptic discrimination. And um, it was a very simple, very, very simple test. And the monkeys would easily do 100 or 200 trials and would do them perfectly well, and they, they showed that they could do this. And chimps would, uh, the two young chimps that I worked with, uh, which were so, so, so much fun, basically, they were so uh, curious and alert, they would do 10 or 20 trials perfectly fine, showing to me that they knew exactly what the problem was and how to solve it. But then they, um, they, their, their brain would start to wander and they would start doing other things and they would want to play with me and tickle me and all of that. And so they, uh, they were not ready to keep going. And, uh, their efficiency was actually much lower than for the monkeys. N not because they were less intelligent, but basically because they were more intelligent, I would argue. Right. They got bored and they wanted to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, you're talking about the echolocation and I switched over to the chimps, but, um, the echolocation makes me think of, I mean, it's almost the same thing as you said, but if, for example, if someone was speaking to us, let's somebody from another planet mm -hmm. comes and speaks to us and their vocal range is higher than our auditory range. Yeah, yeah. So we can't even hear them. And they think we're stupid. <laughs> yeah. You know, is a naked mole rat Stupid? No, it's really smart at being a naked mole rat, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what the, the emphasis on cognition does, you know, compared to intelligence, we used to speak of intelligence in animals, which is still fine if you take it as how, how good are you at finding solutions to certain problems. But cognition is interesting because cognition is information processing. And so it automatically brings in the senses. Like, how do you perceive the world and how do you process that information to your own advantage? And so cognition is broader uh, and, and doesn't equate all the species because it says like an elephant has different senses than the, than the bat and the bat different than the octopus and the octopus different than you. And so obviously they have different cognitions because they, the, the information that they're processing is totally different. And, and that whole perspective still has to trickle through because people, people are still on a sort of comparative scale they're still comparing humans with apes and and then monkeys and, and so down the scale they're thinking in a sort of ladder type fashion uh where we are at the top obviously and we always need to be on the top and as soon as we're not on the top like recently this happened with the young chimp ayumu who had right. better memory flash memory than humans all of a sudden scientists go into training to show that they can do the same thing so they're so upset by it you know yeah this has been on social media this week, Ayuma, even though mm -hmm. uh, the original experiments go back almost 10 years. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I've been seeing videos of Ayuma cropping up on Twitter all week where Ayuma is – well, why don't you explain yeah, what Ayuma so does? I, I, uh, Ayumu is a, a young male chimp in, in Kyoto 
who uh, has been trained to recognize numbers on the screen. So he can uh, look at numbers one through nine in, uh, on, a, on a computer screen and tap them in the right order. Let's these, say These are boxes that have the number in the box. Yeah, but what happens is that he sees these numbers. If he sees them normally and taps them, that's already remarkable enough. But he sees them only for 200 milliseconds. So he sees them, that's like a fifth of a second. And they're randomly assorted on the screen. And so they they change position all the time. And he sees then uh, nine blocks on the screen. And he can tap them in the right order most of the time. And so when when this was demonstrated... uh, some scientists immediately started to try to replicate this with, with their own training, but they did only five numbers. I don't know why they stopped at five, because I can do five. And mm-hmm. that's what I, when I was in Kyoto, I could do five. I had to stare a little bit longer than Ayumu, but I, I could do it. But nine, it becomes impossible, and Ayumu is now training on 15, so we can safely assume that he's going to be better than humans. <laughs> but no. people are very upset by that. <laughs> no. What do you think uh, is in the chimp's natural cognition mm-hmm. that might be giving the chimp, if if you will, a leg up in, yeah. in this particular problem? We don't know. It's a sort of flash memory. And my speculation, but this totally wild speculation, has been that if as a chimp you enter a, tr- a tree, you need to look at all these branches and, and sort of know your escape route or travel route, uh, if, if some big meal comes in that you need to get out of the way, you need to know where to go, so, so that you sort of map that whole thing in your head very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a pure speculation. I cannot really vouch for that. Sure. Mm-hmm. But but we do have to try to figure yeah. out those kind of issues when you see the animal be able to perform like that. Yeah. I, I know you, in the book, you talk about, uh, I might not pronounce it right, uh, a fellow's name, Carol Von Shake. yeah the orangutan researcher, and I interviewed him years ago, and I remember being struck by something he said, that the the abilities, the cognitive abilities of some of these animals might not even be tapped into until you put them in an unusual setting mm-hmm. because they, they have their standard repertoire of capacities in their, in their home ecology. Yeah. Yeah. And then you put them in some kind of a a cognition laboratory, and they might actually come up with stuff that you never dreamed of. Yeah, so the orangutan, being such a big animal living in trees and being dependent on fruit, he needs to know all the fruit and trees in his area and where they are, what stage they are, uh, because it's very costly for him to travel there. So it's not like like the birds who can fly from tree to tree, and, and they don't waste a lot of energy doing that. But for the orangutan, it, it takes quite a bit of planning. And so Carl, uh, who, who was a fellow student of mine in the Netherlands long ago, Carl recently published a paper on how male orangutans announce their future travel. This is very interesting to us because it has to do with what we call time travel, with, with thinking ahead or thinking back to events. And so the male orangutan, he climbs in the top of a tree in the evening before he builds his nest, and he calls in a certain direction, and Carl has been recording the call, and which direction does he call? And then the next morning, so after he has slept in his nest, the next morning he travels in that direction that he was calling in. And so Carl has been correlating these two things and analyzing it, and he's convinced that these male orangutans to the rest of the forest, because he's, he's the king of the whole big territory, that to the rest of the forest and all the females in there, he is announcing, tomorrow I will be going over there. And 
it's possible, and, and, and I think the documentation is quite good. It's based, I think, on hundreds of calls. And uh, that means that he is thinking ahead already one day. Speaking of thinking ahead, you, you tell this wonderful story. Uh, tell the whole story about the grapefruits at the, at the zoo. Oh, oh yeah, the, the grapefruit. So what happened at the Arnhem Zoo, where I used to work, is that we one day we decided to do a little bit of filming uh, with grapefruits that we would hide under the sand on the island uh, to see uh, how the chimps would react to that, basically. So the chimps are in an enclosure at night, but they hang out on this island during the day. During the day, they're on the island. Uh, we we uh, showed them a whole crate of grapefruits while they were all in their sleeping quarters. They were all locked up still. Um, and we showed that big crate of uh, grapefruits, and we thought we would get a reaction from them, but they they sort of ignored the grapefruits. Maybe they thought they were for us or for somebody else. Uh, and so we then took that crate onto the island. So we went through a door to the island, took the crate there. Uh, we, we hid all the fruits uh, for our experiment, and then we came back with an empty crate. And and that's where they reacted. That's where they saw an empty crate and they started jumping around and hollering and slapping each other on the back. And I've never seen animals so excited for no fruit at all because there was nothing visible in the crate. But uh, that's, of course, exactly what happened is they must have deduced that we cannot go out with a crate of grapefruits and come back with an empty without these things staying there. And they also uh, they deduced, they also deduced that... You guys didn't eat all the grapefruit. No, no I hope they, they saw it. I hope they realized that. Yeah, and then uh, another thing that happened is there was one male chimp, Dandy, who, who uh, ran over uh, some hidden fruits. And so we had the, these fruits were barely covered, so you could see only little patches. But he must have been, all of them must have been looking for the fruits because right. they knew they were. This left. was when they were first released. Onto yeah, they the were first, first released. He ran over that place. And we couldn't see him slow down or nothing, so we thought he had missed it. But um, a whole time later, I think an hour later, when everyone was asleep and uh, he was a low-ranking male, he went to the spot and dug them up. So he, he knew where they were. He, he went straight to that spot, so he knew exactly where they were. But he had decided not to react at the moment that he saw them. At the moment he saw them, he he made this almost instantaneous calculation. Yeah, yeah, that it was better for him if he wanted to keep his fruits, not to tell anyone and, and to wait till everyone was sort of occupied with other stuff. Just the, That's just amazing. Yeah. And you talk in the book a lot about the, the different capacities. I mean, some of the birds that can hide thousands yeah. of bits of food for later recovery. Yeah. And, yes. and they know, they really know where they are. Yeah. Yeah. So how... How do you want to compare us with other animals if, if, if there's so many species that have extraordinary capacities? Some of them are very specialized, like, like that food hiding bird. Uh, some of them, like, uh, let's say uh, chimpanzees, they are not specialized. They're, they're like us. They, they can solve all sorts of problems, even problems that like, like what Ayumu does, does with these numbers on the screen is, of course, not a problem they will regularly encounter in the field. So completely no problem that, that tests new capacities. And you, you talk about uh, the ability of some animals to figure out that they need to use one tool to get at another tool yeah. to get at the object of desire. Yeah, yeah. they've done that with, with crows, New Caledonian crows, who are very good tool users, and they can do multiple steps. Now, chimpanzees do that in the field also. Chimpanzees carry what is called tool kits, 
uh, it's a bit like you you carry let's say a screwdriver a hammer and and something else and the the chimps come with three different or four different kinds of sticks to a certain problem and they use one to penetrate the problem and the other one to dig it out or whatever whatever the, the task is that they have at hand, meaning that they must be planning uh, what they're going to do. And we also have some cases, you only have a brief paragraph on this in the book, but I recently edited a, a story in Scientific American by Lee Dugatkin about social networks. Mm-hmm. And there he goes into some depth about the situation in Brazil with the dolphins and the human fishermen. Yeah, yeah. And that's really pretty amazing, too. I, th- I mean, that's another case where it seems like the dolphins trained the humans as much as the other way around. Yeah, the dolphins helped the humans catch fish. But, of course, the humans then share a lot of the fish with the dolphins. I don't know who trained whom there. There's, there's all this, also this story of uh, killer whales who have trained people in Australia. This, this is long ago that when there was still whaling going on there in Australia. Um, the killer whales would bring, sort of drive a big humpback whale in the direction of, uh, of the whalers and they would kill it and then they would leave morsels of it uh, to the killer whales. So, so a cooperation between killer whales and humans because they're both smart creatures and they both understand reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah. I mean, we have sirens here. Yeah. So uh, on the way here, a woman from Brazil asked me if I could give her directions. And I was happy to do so. And then I was thinking about reciprocity because we have moved reciprocity from a a one-on-one situation uh-huh. to a species-wide kind of arrangement where I help this person who I never expect to see again. Mm-hmm. But I do expect that in the future some other person will yeah. help me and if I'm lost. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Li- we live in that kind of societies, so we still rely on these old mechanisms of reciprocity, and we apply them now in on an- anonymous relationships where they really didn't evolve, I think. But um, we live in these large-scale societies, but of course, everything that we do, all our psychology evolved in the small-scale society, where you knew exactly who you were dealing with, and, and you would get things back from that person or its relatives or whatever. Right, and the siren that you know what made me think of it was these people are off to help strangers yeah, in the yeah, in yeah. whatever yeah. fire truck or ambulance it was. Yeah, and you get into a, a, that kind of thing a lot in the book that's now twenty years old, Good Natured, uh-huh. which really had a profound effect on my thinking about the natural world when yeah, I read yeah, it, yeah. about the, the evolution of morality, really. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that was another interest of mine at the moment. I'm focused on, on, on intelligence and cognition. But uh, I, I, was, I was raised as a student in a time that everyone was preoccupied with violence and aggression, selfishness, violence, aggression, competition. That was all we could talk about. And, and I was actually more attracted to other topics and, and saw in my animals that they were doing a lot more than just violence and, and aggression. They were, they were helping each other. They were empathic with each other. And I got re- really interested in those issues. Talk about the ketchup. The ketchup example where the, the chimps are dipping a stick into a hole to get ketchup. Oh. oh into, into a lot of holes. Yeah. And then you, you, um, Restrict the number of holes. Yeah, so there was, and, I'll explain that. This, this was an experiment that was done at the Lincoln Park Zoo where they wanted to test how chimpanzees deal with competition. Because the saying in the literature is that we humans are so great at cooperation and chimpanzees, uh, in contrast, are a very competitive species and they will never 
manage to set up a cooperation like we do. And so what they did at the Lincoln Park Zoo is they they had a sort of mountain, like a, a termite hill with holes in it. And the chimps were given little dipsticks and they could get ketchup out of these holes. And in the beginning, they had a lot of holes. So all the chimps could sit at their own hole and eat uh, eat the, the, the ketchup. But then they started restricting uh, one by one, day by day. Uh, and so all these chimps now had to compete over these holes. And so instead of, let's say, five or six holes, they had two or three holes and um, and the same number of chimps. And and instead of seeing an increase in competition and, and so the whole group falling apart, basically, as, as would have been predicted if chimps are so competitive, the chimps started taking turns. They would sit, uh, two or three of them would sit around the hole and, and in turn they would um, uh, dip their sticks in there. And so they showed, and, and there's many of these experiments, we have done some also, they showed that chimpanzees are actually very good at dealing with competition and handling these kind of situations. So they came to an arrangement where they, they understood that we're all going to get plenty. We just have yeah. to be patient and, and keep Yeah, and, and there's lots of animals who can fight but don't fight under certain circumstances. There's an old experiment that Hans Kummer did in the field. He, he worked with these Hamadryas baboons where the males are huge and they have enormous canines and they're very dangerous and they can kill each other. And so he would throw a little peanut between two males and the males would ignore the peanut. They, it, 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 he, he said you would swear that they were blind, basically. And he, he, his control test was, of course, if a single male would walk up to him, he would throw a peanut, and the single male would always take the peanut. But as soon as there are two males, the peanut was not worth taking because they could get into a fight over it, and it was just not worth it. Now, that's a real example of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. And you also talk in the book uh, another kind of standard uh, test is the, the the floating peanut, and uh, the animal various animals will add either yeah. more water or rocks to the. It's a very complex task. So you give you give a chimpanzee, let's say, uh, a vertical pipe, transparent, uh, in which at the bottom there's a peanut. The, the chimp sees nothing else, He's, and and of course the first thing the chimp does is shaking the pipe and put, putting its fingers in it and all of that, and and if nothing works. There are some chimps, not all of them, but some of them, they will turn around and go to the water faucet and, and suck up a lot of water and spit it in there. We even had one female who tried to pee into it. It was She was not so successful with it, but she tried to. But she had the right idea. Yeah, she had the right idea. And if you do that test on children, they don't solve it. Like four-year-olds, I think it's only 8% who solve it. And five, what is it? Eight-year-olds, only 50%. So children have a lot of trouble with the task. And that is because the water is in the faucet. And so the, the water doesn't even look like a tool. You have to think up this solution. So it's really what, what Curler used to call insight, insightful solution. And, and chimps are capable of that. And then there were birds that figured out that if there was already water in there, if they added rocks, they could raise the level of the water until the peanut became available. Yeah, that's an old uh, Aesop fable. So Aesop had this fable of the of the crow who found uh, a can with water and he couldn't reach the water. And so he started throwing stones in it till the water came to its level. And uh, they have repeated it now in certain labs. Yeah. So that's literally thousands of years old and it's yeah. now been shown to be yeah. true. Yeah. And there was another example of... Uh, I can't remember the particular behavior, but somebody had noticed it in South America 500 years ago. Yeah, this is the nutcracking by monkeys, capuchin monkeys. And so it was rediscovered, so to speak, uh, just uh, 10 or 20 years ago. 
and and actually um, the chimp experts were a bit upset by it because th- that's another thing is we have these competitions between people like my, my crows are smarter than your monkeys and that kind of stuff and so the um, the chimp people were not entirely happy because they had they had a very nice story about the tool use of chimpanzees they crack nuts with stones so they have reached the stone age just like we did at some point and it was a whole a nice coherent story in which monkeys did not belong, certainly not South American monkeys. And and the capuchins are, are very sophisticated. They bring their tools from distances and they, they wait, wait till the fruits are ripe to hit them with the, the rocks that they use. And it's all very sophisticated. And just this week, we got evidence that South American monkeys probably reached the continent much earlier than we had previously thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the South American primates were often, when I started working with capuchin monkeys, they were often depicted as a bit dumb compared to all the other primates. Like they were primitive and they were dumb. Uh, You've heard this so often about animals. Like there are, in my mind, there are no dumb animals. But anyway, people would say that. And uh, capuchin monkeys are actually very sophisticated. Have a lar- they have a larger brain than most other monkeys. They have a brain as large as a chimpanzee compared to their body size. And they're very manipulative and tool-using primates. I-, I wouldn't rate them at the same level as a chimp necessarily, but they're very smart primates. But again, this whole question of, of rating mm-hmm. different animals is problematic. Yeah, yeah. It's a... It's a it's a leftover of the natural scale, the natural la- ladder, which came out of Greece, you know, the Scala Naturae. And, and everything needs to be on that ladder. And obviously, humans need to be on the top. Uh, but but I look at the intelligence of animals more like a bush. There's, there's an enormous bush with all sorts of branches. And sometimes there are specializations that you can't even imagine, like, let's say, echolocation in bats and in dolphins. Um, we cannot relate to that. that. That requires a cognition that... We don't have, and we may look down on it because we don't have it, and so it, we cannot relate to it. But it is, of course, very sophisticated to detect prey in flight and to catch it in flight based on bounce-back sounds of yourself. That's a very complex task, I think. So when we look at chimps, and, and they look obviously intelligent to us, and physically, they're obviously evolutionarily, they're close to us. When we rate their intelligence, are we just saying... They're close to us. Yeah. Therefore, they are, they're intelligent. A snake does not have that same intelligence because it's much further away from us evolutionarily. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone so, so, a fish or. Yeah. So we're, Im- we're impressed by chimpanzees. Some people, of course, are not impressed by chimpanzees, but we're impressed by chimpanzees. And that is partly because they are so similar to us. So they can do things that we can and, and we can relate to that. And, uh, and and then what a bat does or what a dolphin does or what an octopus does relates much less to what we do. And so we don't know where to put that. And so, for example, the octopus needs to perceive its, its whole environment. And then at some point it may adopt the color of its environment. So, so it, it, this is a cognitive task. You need to fit in. And in order to hide yourself, you either adopt the color or you start walking in a particular way or you cover yourself with coconut shells or whatever the octopus does to solve that problem. And and it is an intelligent solution, probably based on learning. That's what we assume. The octopus has enough brain cells to do that. And uh, we cannot relate to that. And so we sort of discard it as not so interesting. But again, just this past week, we have this incredible example of 
octopus intelligence when an octopus escaped from its tank uh-huh. somewhere. Uh, I think it might have been Australia. New Zealand. Yeah. New Zealand, right. It's Inky the octopus who left its tank. Now, I'm a bit skeptical about uh-huh. it because uh, the octopus is said to have found a drain and gone to the ocean through the drain. How many drains lead directly to the ocean? That's one question I have. Uh, and isn't it possible? Because it's very dangerous what the octopus did. It was not necessarily a smart thing because leaving your tank with water for an octopus is not necessarily the best thing to do. And they may end up shriveled dry on the floor. Right. And it, I'm, I'm a bit distrustful okay, of the so PR we, department of that uh, aquarium. So we need more data there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you remind me of the story in your book about the two chimps who got out of their cage and nobody would have known because the next morning mm-hmm. they had let themselves back into their cage and even and, shut the door behind yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, they had closed the door behind <laughs> them. And so when we arrived and found them sleeping in their cage, we were convinced nothing had happened. But then uh, a secretary came screaming down the hall uh, that there were some droppings in the hall. And where did they come from? Well, we we knew very soon where they came from. So, <laughs> the, so these guys were so cunning that they let themselves back in so that nobody would be the wiser. Yeah, they just weren't is. cunning enough not to do their business in the hall. Oh, there's even a stronger story. This was in, in Switzerland uh, where the orangutans had a skylight above them. In uh, The orangutans at the zoo, they had a skylight above them that they had completely dismantled. So the whole skylight would come out. And it's only much later, years later, that they discovered that every night on the summer nights there was nice weather. These orangutans would be living on the roof and they would, in the morning before the keepers came, they would go back into their cage and put that whole skylight back up and and people they must have been doing that for the longest time and no one had even noticed. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You talk about the orangutans very carefully dismantling their cages and hiding the screws and bolts yeah, yeah, yeah. so that no one was the wiser until the cage actually just fell apart. Yeah, that's actually something that the zoo people know is that the orangutans that's also why it's so intriguing. For the longest time orangutans were considered not particularly good tool users. Even though in zoos they are the best escape artists and they're wonderful tool users. And so no one co- could explain that until, of course, uh, some field workers found a group of orangutans that use tools quite extensively in the field. Um, but orangutans are known for that, is that to, to hide the evidence of their uh, undoing of the cage. Yeah. So to wrap up, we, we really shouldn't ask which animal is the smartest other than us mm-hmm. or which animal is smarter than this other animal the questions are so laden with with baggage yeah so the question should be how did cognition evolve why do certain animals have this cognition or that cognition how does it serve them to have these abilities uh, the, the contest type of which is smarter, a dog or a cat, which is such a strange question to well, me. That's, well, it's <laughs> obviously a cat. You I, think I, it's obviously a cat. I'm just kidding because I'm I, a cat owner. I know quite a few dog owners who feel differently. And why do they feel differently? Is it because the dog is happy to see them and follows their orders, which the cat doesn't do? And and as soon as some someone follows your orders, it must be a smart animal. That's sort of how we think. But this whole contest type thinking, who is smarter and who is dumber, is is very alien to me and, and has no function in science. In science, we have very different questions, I think.
What do you mean? What, what I mean, the questions that, that we're after is like, why do do certain species have the cognition that they have? What do they do with it? How does it serve a purpose for them? Um, what are the peaks of their specialization, so to speak, and so on? And to do that, you really have to look at their evolutionary history and their life history. Yeah. Great stuff. Thanks so much for taking the time and thanks for the book. It's terrific. Good. Good. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out Cole Mulcahy's review of the new movie, The Man Who Knew Infinity, about the incredible life of math genius Srivanisa Ramanujan. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 